Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to Stand Up For The Truth. A lot that we're going to get to today, and uh, including a, a, a letter from a prisoner. Um, yes, people listen to the radio and listen online to uh, sermons and, and other things in prison. Um, you might call that a captive audience, and that's for your show, Crash. But anyway, um, we're going to read you parts of a letter we got from a man named Benjamin who is incarcerated and so encouraging, not only to our ministry, but uh, to people who are out there online, uh, pastors who put their sermons out there. You never know who's going to hear them. Also, later on in the podcast, we'll be talking about what I would consider, and maybe you would too in America, communist policy. It's wrong. And I'll tell you, this administration in the White House is dangerous because they are moderating speech. If you a brand new story over at Washington Times and Fox Business uh, and other outlets, the White House is now they have admitted to moderating and flagging problematic posts on Facebook. And they've apparently uh, done thousands. So they're trying to this is communist policy, friends. And this is this battle of information and free speech. We better keep our ears open about this. And uh, then also an article from Pastor Matt Truella of uh, Missionaries to the Preborn. We'll get to that in the third segment today. Many white evangelicals don't want the vaccine. And, of course, most evangelicals, I think. Um, I think there's a lot, not just white evangelicals. We'll talk about that later on. But we're going to talk about something that we haven't on this podcast. We quote Charles Spurgeon a lot. And we share his uh, his sermons, and man, what an outstanding man of God and influence in the Christian church, particularly in America. But today we're going to talk about the untold love story of Charles Spurgeon and his wife Susie, and about a book called Yours Till Heaven by Ray Rhodes Jr., And we'll get to Ray as soon as we open up. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about things that are going on all around us. And we need to know as a church, as the body of Christ, how to respond to what's going on in our culture, in our country, in the world today. But also, Lord, in your church, the church of Jesus Christ. We need to test all things, Lord, so give us wisdom wisdom on how to do that. And we thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit who gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. We pray, Lord, for discernment in these last days. And we pray, God, that we would continually to re- rely on you no matter what happens. We recognize that you are sovereign and your word is the final authority. In Jesus' name, amen. We are blessed to have Ray Rhodes Jr. with us today. He's the founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia. He's the president of Nourished in the Word Ministries, and he has served four congregations over three decades of pastoral ministry. He's published several books and holds theological degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's married to Lori uh, and they're blessed to have six daughters and four grandchildren. Ray's been a Spurgeon enthusiast for uh, much of his life, and his doctoral thesis focused on the marriage and spirituality of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. And that's our topic for the first two segments today. Ray Rhodes, Jr., welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Well, thank you, David, for having me on this morning. Well, thank you for uh, digging into some history that most believers haven't learned or heard a lot about. So let's get right to your book. It's called Yours Till Heaven, and it's the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. And I love the description. It says uh, Charles Spurgeon is esteemed for his writing, preaching, and passion for the Lord, but behind the great man was a great wife, and between the man and wife was a profound marriage. Talk to us about what got your interest peaked, not only about his sermons and great preaching and some phenomenal quotes, 
but to dig into his personal life and the marriage, the personal life of Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, I think uh, most of us, or many of us who are Christians, we're aware of Charles Spurgeon, and he's sort of this larger-than-life monument figure, Mm. almost, that uh, sort of like a museum piece that we walk by and admire and but feel that he's not really touchable, uh, mm, not relatable in some way, because he's just too great, too majestic. And I wanted to know more about Spurgeon the man, uh, Spurgeon the family man, Spurgeon the husband, and, uh, of course, uh, his wife, Susie. And uh, so though my interest in Spurgeon has been going on through much of my adult life, I didn't know anything about his marriage. I knew he was married. I knew he was married to a woman named Susanna or Susie. And I knew that she gave away a lot of books to poor pastors, mm. and I knew that she was sick most of their marriage, but that's it. I didn't know anything about how they related to one another, what their spirituality was like, what kind of challenges they they had together, any of that. And uh, when, I, when I went back to school a little bit later in life to work on my doctorate, I had to choose a topic, and I said, well, let's find an angle on Spurgeon. And so we were able to narrow it down to his the spirituality of his marriage, and that led me on this journey, discovering Susie Spurgeon, discovering more about their marriage, and now two books in to the Spurgeon world. And you put this one out just this year, a couple months, well, February of this year, and doing very well on Amazon, five-star reviews and ratings. And one question I want to ask you before we have to say goodbye later on, uh, in the podcast, I want to make sure I get this one in. W- w- if there was one thing, Ray, that surprised you uh, about your research about the Spurgeons, what might that be, or was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, well, I think one thing that uh, there, there are many things, but one thing that was most surprising, perhaps, is how romantic uh, Charles Spurgeon was, hmm. and how tender he was in his uh, writing to his wife. He he would write the most beautiful and expressive love letters to her, and, you know, I'm just stunned that uh, he was gone a lot from home early hmm. in his ministry. Sometimes he'd preach 12 times a week. Some of those times he'd get back in the evening, other times not. As his ministry went uh, further along and his health deteriorated, sometimes he'd be gone three months from home. But he wrote her a letter every day uh, that he was gone, every single day with a dip pen and paper. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty stunning. That's amazing. The the stuff he put in the letters, uh, really, it's just sweet. Uh, you know, just just sweet. Hmm. And Susie said that you know every day his messages came to her, and uh, I thought about that. You know, I. I'm, I'm, I travel some with my ministry, speaking in various things, and I do try to touch base at least with my wife uh, <laughs> each day in some way or form, but I, I certainly not to the level that Spurgeon did, and not uh, always with the creative and descriptive romantic language that Spurgeon used. Man, Ray, talk about raising the bar for us Christian husbands. <laughs> this is that's quite amazing, and uh, what a, what a story! But things we didn't know about Charles Spurgeon. So you said earlier that um, Susie dealt with some major health concerns a good part of their lives. Th- these are things that uh, we would never know by the the thundering um, Bible centered preaching. And with a gospel that he was so dedicated to and committed to sharing his his even evangel or evangelical approach uh, to his teaching, um, we don't know much about the health struggles. That boy, talk about testing you along the way. Share a little bit more about what you know uh, there with, with what Susie was dealing with. Yeah, both of them uh, really struggle with major health issues. Mm. Uh, Susie. Uh, they had twins the first year of their marriage, never able to have children again, and we think that that is uh, really the pro- her, was her health problem, was something connected to uh, some fe- uh, female issues. Uh, she had surgery in either late 1868 or 1869, about 12 years into their marriage, and uh, it was by one of the most famed gynecologists of the day, which also gives us a hint Victorian mm-hmm. culture, uh, they would not have been as open as um, American culture is today about those sorts of things. So it's sort of shrouded in secrecy and mystery, but pretty sure that it's related to that. And we think they would have had children, more children, if they could have had more children. Spurgeon loved, they both loved children very much. 
And uh, after that surgery, really, though it relieved some pain, she essentially was an invalid mm. and at home uh, oh. for much of the rest of their marriage. Now, later on, the Lord did some wonderful things, and she was able to, to leave for periods with Charles. But uh, mostly from 1868 until his death in 1892, uh, the nature of her illnesses was she could not travel. The nature of his illnesses, he was required to travel. Uh, to get to warmer weather, to get out of the smog and the the cold winters of London. I mean, the, the air in London during that day was terrible. Wow. Uh, the Industrial Revolution bellowing out smoke everywhere. And, and some days it would be so dark at midday, not because of a storm or eclipse or anything, just the, the smog and the fog uh, and the air of London. Uh, there's stories of people uh, walking into the Thames River by accident and drowning. Oh, my they could goodness. See. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So none of that uh, worked in Spurgeon's favor. So he had to leave, especially later in his life. He had to leave for the winters, and she couldn't leave. Mm. Uh, so that was part of uh, that was her major issue was uh, that. And Spurgeon himself suffered early on with gout. He had kidney disease. He also suffered with. I mean, very joyful, happy man uh, could could make a room laugh in no time flat. Really, he's just a very happy guy. Mm. But he suffered with depression, deep dark depression as well. Mm. We're speaking with Ray Rhodes, Jr., the founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Georgia, president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. The book is called Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Another sentence from the description, Ray, I really like. There must be a lot in this. Discover how Charles and Susie traversed the challenges of loneliness, physical affliction, popularity, controversy, and other trials together with a heavenly vision. Now, we talked a little bit about the challenges of the physical affliction, and I'm sure, Susie, the loneliness that she experienced while Charles was out traveling and and gone from home for so long, what did they deal with regarding popularity? Because he was very popular. Um, so can you what can you tell us about that? Yeah, he was, and really early on. He, he came from the country, which is uh, another sort of surprising thing about Spurgeon. He was pastoring a village church, uh, basically an, an unknown uh, up there. Uh, the church started with about 40 people. It uh, blossomed to 400 people during his two-year ministry. And uh, it was really just by God's providence that someone from London was passing through, heard him speak at an event, uh, told the church in London about him, and they invited him down. They were without a pastor. Uh, long story short, uh, they called him to be their pastor in 1854, and almost immediately that church had been one of the most prominent Baptist churches in the world. It was down to uh, under under 200 people, held 1,200 people in the building at that time. And within no time, the building is full. People are being converted to Christ, uh, growing in the faith. There's not enough room. They're expanding. They're they're having services in various locations around town to accommodate the crowds. Eventually, they build the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which you could get about 6,000, 6,500 people in. Twice wow. on Sundays, they'd meet during the week as well. Everywhere Spurgeon went, hmm. uh, there was a crowd. He said that uh, you know he could call a meeting at midnight on a snowy night, and uh, people would show up. Uh, and he couldn't understand it fully himself, other than this was the Lord at work in his particular unique situation. So everywhere he went, uh, his sermons were in demand. They were published every week. Uh, that continued on through all of his ministry and beyond. Uh, he wrote about 135 books. Wow. Uh, numerous articles, answered hundreds of letters each week, uh, led 60 institutions connected to his church. Uh, just a phenomenal life. And uh, again, a country boy that comes to the city that God used in, in unusual ways uh, there in London. What's fascinating to me, Ray Rhodes Jr., is one of the endorsements for the book. And I want to read it, and you'll know, if you're listening, you'll know who it's from uh, after a couple sentences. It says, Ray Rhodes has given us a beautifully written account of the love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon in Yours Till Heaven. I am truly very thankful for the deep love that my great-great-grandparents shared for God and for each other. And I have learned valuable lessons from reading about their lives together. And then she said this, 
Today, I fear that marriage is losing its God-given meaning as a picture of Christ's love for his church and people enter into this sacred union with little thought of what their marriage should look like day to day. And that, of course, was from Susanna Spurgeon Cochran, and that's the great-great-granddaughter of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Ray, first of all, two, two questions in one. Um, first of all, how you connected with the great-great-granddaughter of Charles Spurgeon and Susie. And secondly, just share your thoughts on what she said, the, that observation about how marriage is losing its God-given meaning today. Yeah, I was, uh, again, an amazing providence of God. I was actually doing research in the archives at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, when a couple walked in, and uh, they were talking to someone there and overheard that they were from London and made their first trip ever to America. And I struck up a conversation because I was about to head to London for a, a research trip. And uh, that led to a friendship, and the gentleman there said, well, who's picking you up at the airport? And I said, well, I'm planning to take the train. And he said, that's not going to work. I'm going to pick you up. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a complete stranger I had not known until that day. Uh, and indeed, he, he and his wife did pick us up at the airport. But he, uh, he also wrote me, he said, by the way, I, I don't know if I told you, uh, Charles Spurgeon's great-great-granddaughter lives just down the road from my house. <laughs> and I said, oh, and I just, my heart sunk. I said, well, is there any way that you could work out so that we could meet her? And uh, he did. He, uh, uh, when we were in London, he had us over for dinner, uh, had her come uh, by as well. So we met her in person, and then my second trip over, we got to go to her home and meet her family, her husband and children, uh, a godly, just a godly family. Uh, she says, uh, really, their family is an answer to Spurgeon's prayers. She points to one of his books where he's praying for the generations to come out of his own family, and uh, they love the Lord and serve him faithfully, and uh, she's endorsed both of my books on Spurgeon now. Wow. And just uh, so thankful for that. And, yeah, what she said is, is true, as you know, uh, around the world, really, but uh, we're, we're right here in America. We're seeing continually the uh, cultural definitions of marriage changing, and there is no real definition in the culture of marriage anymore. Uh, but Spurgeon drives us back to what he did on every other issue. What does the Bible say? Mm. What does God's Word say? say? And uh, God created Adam and Eve and joined them together, husband and wife, male and female. Uh, he created them, and marriage is for a, life <clears throat> for a lifetime. And Spurgeon had no concept in his own marriage of anything other than that, you know, committing himself to one woman, one woman only, for all of his life, loving her devotedly, uh, giving and serving her as he could, and she the same to him. So we can learn a lot about what marriage ought mm -hmm. to look like. And I think one of the beautiful things about Charles and Susie is, uh, is that we kind of remove them from this pedestal that we have them on mm, and see them in their marriage yes. suffering and yes. the challenges that they face and how they prayed for one another, kept Christ central, and looked to the Scripture uh, not for the definition of marriage and also for the answer to everything else. I've got a perfect quote to share after what you just said from the book, Yours Till Heaven. It says, On their knees with an open Bible, Charles and Susie's spirituality deepened and steeled them, S-T-E-E-L-E-D, for their journey together. And at, from what I understand, from what you've shared so far, Ray, uh, they needed that with all the challenges in life, the, the, physical, the, the, the physical afflictions, the loneliness, when they're apart from each other for so many months probably at a time, uh, the popularity, controversy, and other trials. Um, my goodness, what a phenomenal testimony. Um, that's uh, on your website. You, there's a couple quotes, and that's one that stuck out to me. They're on their knees together, seeking the Lord, reading His Word. And uh, we've got to take a break in a few seconds here. But when we come back, I want to ask you about how Susie contributed to Charles Spurgeon's preaching ministry. And that will then obviously translate or go flow into the influence of a godly wife on a man of God. We're speaking with Ray Rhodes Jr. The book is called Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. A lot more coming up on Stand Up For The Truth. 
Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Ray Rhodes Jr. and the book is Yours Till Heaven on the lives of Charles Spurgeon and his wife Susie. And we're learning about their marriage, about their love, their commitment, about their humanity, really. And also now, Ray, I'd like to ask you what you learned or what you can tell us about the influence of Susie, um, the influence of a godly wife. You know, what did she contribute to Charles Spurgeon's preaching ministry? Yeah, so much. Uh, In fact, I think uh, that we don't have Charles Spurgeon as we have him today. Uh, So beloved uh, here in America, uh, his books are still read. One of the best-selling Christian authors still, Charles Spurgeon. It's hard to even fathom that. But I don't think we have him as we have him if he had not had her. Hmm. Uh, He needed a wife, uh, but he didn't need just any wife. He needed the wife that uh, he needed, Susie. Hmm. She was fit for him and he for her. And I think she helped him in his preaching ministry in numerous ways. Uh, when they were engaged, their, uh, one of their date, so-called date nights, if you will, uh, he would go over to her home on a Monday evening, and he would edit his sermon from Sunday, which would be then published. And uh, th- they were engaged in uh, 1854, uh, August, and so he, was, he would start going over to her home, and he would do that. And she would... Uh, be there with him. She thought that was great training for a pastor's wife. Sometimes she would sit quietly. Other times she'd have her read something to him or for him. Later, especially in their marriage, he would actually uh, get her to read commentaries out loud to him. Uh, mm. He'd bring her into his study and converse with her about uh, the subject matter he was thinking for the sermon on Sunday. Uh, there's even a story in the book of one night he went to bed on a Saturday night and he didn't have his sermon. And he was anxious about that, and she said, go to sleep, I'll wake you up early, you can get an early start on that. Uh, and Spurgeon, in the middle of the night, started talking in his sleep, and he was talking about the passage he had been wrestling with uh, pr- earlier. <laughs> wow. And uh, he began giving an outline and preaching a sermon in his sleep, and Susie uh, was able to, to get that. And the next morning when he woke up, she told him, and he was stunned. Oh my goodness! Uh, and uh, took it as from God, and uh, he preached that message. So that's uh, one of the more unusual ways that she helped him. She remembered his sermon in his sleep, and it became his. Uh, I forget the number, which volume it's, it's still in the collected sermons of Charles Spurgeon today. <laughs> wow! What a great story! My goodness! Um, wow! I'm still, you know, absorbing what you just shared. Um, I know you wrote another book. Uh, your previous book was on Susie Spurgeon, wasn't wasn't that right? Yeah, it was called Susie: The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, and it was a the first ever full biography of her. There was a small one done in 1903, which is very good. Wow! But no one had ever done a fuller treatment of her, and uh, I was able to. Uh, that was my first book with Moody Publishers, and they, uh, that led to the the second book with Moody as well. You are still having. So let me jump ahead to to that just for a minute before we go back to their marriage and their relationship and what was that like in the 1800s. Um, what is it that makes Susanna Spurgeon, Susie Spurgeon, one of C- Christian history's greatest women? Yeah, you know, Susie was so different from Charles in the way that she was raised and the circumstances of her upbringing. Again, he's from deep country. His grandfather's a small village pastor. His father's a bivocational pastor. Uh, They live in small town uh, England. And Susie is in London. And so she is refined and cultured and uh, educated in ways that Spurgeon was not. I mean, he was educated as well, but not uh, not in the same sort of ways as Susie was. She also spent time in Paris where she learned French. And that's one of the ways that the Lord used her to to help him, uh, I think, is uh, her perspective on the world, her understanding of things that was not as familiar to him. Uh, but she still had no idea when, and she said that when they were engaged in August of 1854, she said she couldn't know, she didn't know uh, what kind of man he was going to be. Uh, her mother picked it up, it seems, even before she did, 
there's a story of one evening Spurgeon is preaching to a very large crowd, and he picks Susie up, and they they get out of the carriage, they go inside of the building. He is so absorbed with the task at hand, he completely forgets about her. Uh, and then she is upset with him, and she runs home to her mother, which uh, was about a mile away. So she <laughs> she left the event thinking that he had dis- been dismissive of her, and her mother pulled her aside and helped her to see, you know, you are the the man that's your fiance is is not an ordinary man. Uh, she could tell that God had uh, unusual plans for Charles Spurgeon. Mm. And uh, she was able to counsel her daughter. When when Spurgeon realized what had happened after the service was over, he was all upset himself. He ran to uh, he got back to her home and very apologetic. Uh, he was so absorbed they just had had overlooked the situation, and uh, they worked it out that night. And the mother-in-law, instead of driving a wedge, uh, actually became a source of unity. And Susie made a commitment that night, uh, or soon after that she would never, and she wanted to never, be a hindrance to him in his public ministry, not even allowing her sicknesses, any sicknesses that she might have, to in any way hinder him mm-hmm. from his ministry. And she didn't do that through grit teeth. Uh, she did that joyfully and to the Lord. It was a commitment to Christ. It's a commitment to her husband. And she fulfilled that. There's an occasion when she was on. Uh, she was at home. She got very sick. They thought she was going to die. Spurgeon was away from home, about to speak at an event, and he got a telegram about her sickness. But also with the telegram, she was able to say, "Do not come home. Hmm. Fulfill your ministry." Wow! Wow! <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's not that she was not lonely. She missed him. Uh, she was anxious without him. Uh, she wanted to be with him. Of course, but she uh, she believed in what he was doing, and she that was one way she could join him in his work. Though physically, she couldn't usually be with him. That's another great example, Ray, of someone. And we are told in Scripture to look out for others' interests above our own. But this was even more than that. This was even beyond looking out for another person's interests. These were the things that Charles Spurgeon was called to do. He was called to ministry by God. So she was putting God's will and his and the gospel really above her own needs, her own wants. And that's hard for any of us to do uh, in this day and age. Isn't that a challenge for those of us that, you know, we we are so self-focused at times, but what a great example of selflessness, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, and, you know, in that, that culture, ministers had a view of ministry where ministry was first. And, uh, you know, we, we think about it from uh, some different perspectives somewhat today. But I think the Susie's sacrifice is an example to all of us. Yes. And I, I don't think that uh, even with the attempts I've made in the two books, I still don't think I can fully appreciate mm. Uh, the sort of sacrifices that she made out of love for the Lord and out of love for her husband and out of love for the gospel that is still benefiting people today. I mean, think about it, uh, uh, David. The Today, as I said, Charles Spurgeon is widely read. There's the Spurgeon Library and Spurgeon Center at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City where Spurgeon scholars are congregating. Uh, every day, if you go, if you use social media at all, I think of all the Christian leaders in history, many great men and women. Spurgeon is on social media, uh, being quoted, <laughs> being tweeted, being uh, posted <laughs> yeah. uh, multiple times, hundreds of times, uh, I don't, maybe thousands of times every single day. His influence lives on every Sunday. Pastors are quoting Charles Spurgeon uh, in their sermons. His and I think, I think in large part it's because he had this sort of wife that made these sorts of sacrifices, that prayed for her husband, encouraged him in his work, mm. and he never left home imagining that she was at home sulking, mm. and that when he got home she was going to be angry at him for being gone. He knew that she was praying for him while he was away, and mm. she would welcome him when he returned home. And he, by the way, this is, uh, loved her, missed her, and you see that in these letters. He would write her, and he would say things like, you know, this, I've seen this wonderful thing today, Susie, but there's one thing missing. 
Oh, that you were here. Mm. Oh, that you were here. I mean, he just repeated that letter after letter. Oh, that you were here. That was the greatest desire of his heart was to be with his wife as well. Wow. What a story. Um, Ray, do you know uh, what at what point in their uh, lives, marriage, ministry, what was the longest they were separated? Yeah, about uh, starting about 18, early 1870s, maybe 70. Two seventy-three. Spurgeon's health deteriorated to such a point where he had to go down to the. His doctors recommended he'd go down to the French Riviera, <clears throat> a place called Monton is where he landed, and he would usually sp- stay up to three months wow. uh, at one time. Okay. And she could not go with him, and that was uh, that was his greatest desire. And here, here's one of the great miracles of their marriage, and one of the s- sweet providences of God. The very last trip he took down there, it's 1891 in October. Uh, he's he's very ill again, and uh, he so he plans another trip. And every time he would go, he'd get enough strength to come back and minister again and do what he had been doing as best he could. But the Lord raised Susie up, and for the first time uh, out of all of those trips, she was able to make the journey with him, about a 1,000 miles, I think. Wow. Home. And uh, so she went. And she describes those uh, those months as perfect happiness, hmm. and, uh, and t- until January of 1892. So they're there together. Charles is showing her <clears throat> sights. He says, "Wasn't it worth the trip down just to see this?" And she later wrote about that. She said, "It was wonderful to see the sights, but the greatest joy of my heart was seeing how happy my husband was and having me with him." Wow. And uh, but in January of 1892, uh, he fell sick uh, there in Montan and went to bed and uh, for about 12 days, I think. And he died with mm. Susie at his side. So that's another uh, great providence of God that though she had never been able to go on his very last trip, not, neither of them knew that, expected that. She was able to go. They were able to have perfect happiness away from home in this paradise. Montan is a, really a paradise still today. And that she was able to be at his side when he died. And mm. then she prayed and thanked the Lord for the love of such a good man. Wow. We're speaking with Ray Rhodes, Jr., the pastor of Grace Community Church, Dawsonville, Georgia. And the book is called Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Um, Ray, tell us about the Surrey Gardens Music Hall disaster, how it affected Spurgeon's ministry, their marriage, and what can other pastors and preachers learn about experiencing trauma and going through it trusting God? Yeah, this is early, this is the first year of their marriage. So they're married in January of 1856. They've got uh, twins in October. Uh, they also, uh, this is when the disaster happens. Their church, his church is growing so rapidly. They're renting these other facilities. This was the very first time at this place, the music hall, uh, it was a Sunday evening uh, in October, and so Spurgeon comes up on his carriage. There's thousands of people outside of the building, and he gets inside. There are about 10,000 people inside the building, 10,000 outside that can't get in. Uh, and someone yells, fire, fire. Uh, there is no fire. It's just mischief makers trying to cause Spurgeon harm. And, there, and a great panic ensues. Uh, people are leaping from the balconies, trampling over one another, it's just a terrible, horrific scene. Seven people die. Uh, about 30 people are hospitalized. Spurgeon collapsed. The report is that he died. He didn't. But uh, he was transported out of there, uh, went to the home of a deacon where he recovered. Susie and the twins joined him there. Uh, Spurgeon had suffered from depression prior to that. After that, uh, the depression deepened. Uh, the, his seasons of that, again, not wanting to paint him as this just uh, depressive person. He was a very joyful man, but his seasons of depression could be very, very dark and very, very sad. And uh, this music hall disaster seemed to sort of imprint depression upon his heart in a way that he couldn't shake. Mm. And other experiences, maybe with a large crowd or some noise or something, would would remind him of that event, uh, and he could be paralyzed. Uh, he would just sit down and couldn't move, and no one could sort of get his attention even uh, for a period of time until he sort of snapped out of it. 
So I think, again, this this tells us that Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, preacher, the great theologian, the great leader of institutions, the great husband of Susie, was a man like all of us are, brother. Uh, he's, yes. he's a man, frail child of dust, and feeble as frail, as the hymn writer puts it. And what we can learn is what he did during those times of suffering and struggle, is we can either run away from the Lord and and uh, shake our fist at God, or we can run to the, our Heavenly Father. And what Spurgeon, Charles, and Susie did during those times is they ran to Christ, to His loving arms. They they went to Him in prayer. Mm-hmm. They stayed close to one another. They didn't. Uh, another thing that can happen in times of trouble of any sort between a husband and wife is that they can run away from each other or sort of isolate themselves from mm-hmm. one another. They didn't do that. Uh, they ran to Christ. They ran to one another. Uh, they they went to the means that God uses when he's always going to help us and change us and bless us. And it's simple. The Word of God and prayer and the people of God, those sorts of spiritual disciplines sustained them. And they're available to us as well. Their life was not easy. And uh, towards the end of Spurgeon's life was the great controversy, the uh, downgrade controversy, when some of his dearest friends had been his friends throughout his life, abandoned him in this time of theological controversy. Mm. Spurgeon standing for the authority and sufficiency of the Bible, the great doctrines of the faith. People began, had become, some of them had succumbed to liberalism and yeah. was happening in his own denomination. And it broke his heart. And Susie believed that was the, the last great cause of mm. Spurgeon's early death at age 57 was his heartbreak over the controversy and loss of friendships. Mm. And we know what that's like. We see the splits in churches today. Um, you know, we, we see people falling away. Apostasy. It's, it's prophetic. It's sad to see. Um, but it's, it's good to know that um, it, it happens to the best of us, and the best leaders and preachers can still go through this with disappointment, with people falling away, disagreeing. But I'm thankful. I know you are too, Ray, and, and uh, our audience is thankful for his stand on the truth of the Scriptures and the authority of God's Word. Um, Ray Rhodes, Jr., the book is called Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ray. Uh, it's, it was a fascinating, uh, just the insights that you've given us. I'm sure there's a lot more in the pages of your book. So God bless you, brother. Uh, God, we will talk in the near future again. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Have a blessed day, brother. Thanks, Ray. All right, when we come back, we'll get to those articles I mentioned at the top of the hour, including a letter from a, a prisoner. His name is Benjamin. Some fascinating things he says about how Ministries can make a difference behind prison walls. Sometimes we don't even know it. And then some other uh, regional stories and cultural issues that we need to talk about, especially the administration in the White House censoring speech using Facebook to do it. More on Standard for the Truth in just a minute. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. All right, I did want to mention... Um, Liberty Pastors, the conference that I will be attending again this year. Last year was in Dallas. This year I'm going to one in Oklahoma at uh, the end of the month, and that's just a couple weeks away. Um, I'm going to interview several of the speakers there. I'll, I'll have some of the podcasts recorded, and we'll do one at the end of that week, at the end of July. But I, I didn't want to tell you that—I did want to tell you that there are other— conferences. There's one right after that. It's the Edmond, Oklahoma one came after the Florida one. And there's another one next month. I believe it is in um, Houston, Texas. So you can tell your pastors, regardless of whether they can make the Oklahoma one, it is actually I lied. It's September, <laughs> September 12th through the 15th, the Woodlands, Texas, which I believe it's by Houston. So there's another conference Right, you know, the, the, the one I'm saying, similar to the one I'm going through, most of the same speakers. There's a couple new ones Stephen Broden, uh, Bob McEwen, um, Alex Newman, Dr. Lee Merritt, Dan Fisher, Paul Blair, Rick Scarborough, and a few others. So there's one in September in Houston. So libertypastors.com, get this information to your pastor. It is $99 for your pastor and his wife for three days. Three days and nights at uh, the, in the Oklahoma one. It's at the Hilton Conference Center. 
Texas, I'm not sure where where that's going to be held, but you can get more information. LibertyPastors.com. It's biblical training on how to become a bold preacher and address addressing, being informed and able to address the cultural issues and all the things that are coming against the church, the immorality, the hostility, the religious freedom issues, the attacks on our freedoms, a lot of things biblically we need to know how to respond. So, okay, the letter from uh, Benjamin, his name is, I'm just going to, it's quite lengthy, I'm just going to read a few lines from it. He says, I hope you will indulge me for a moment as I explain my history with Q90 and Stand Up for the Truth. And he goes into that for several paragraphs. But he says, I was very excited to find the radio station comes in clearly, as well as Stand Up for the Truth. I felt like I was reconnecting to part of me that was slipping away. He said, your ministry has potential for a huge impact on prisoners. If you think political agenda if, if you think political agenda has control of culture out there, imagine the pressure we are under. Here's what he said. Chaplains are being removed from prisons at an alarming rate. He said every Jesus-following chaplain has been removed or beaten into submission in the institutions, meaning in the prisons. And there's a lot more detail he goes into, but pray Friends, pray for, for our brothers and sisters who are in behind bars, who are imprisoned, uh, because there are a lot of believers that are, obviously, they're lonely. They're trying to, to learn and grow and live out their, their faith. Some of it, it, sometimes it's a new faith. But he said this, I just know that the Holy Spirit has put it on my heart to write to you for a few weeks, I'm sick of not living my life and being who he has called me to be. And then he said, may God bless you in return for the blessings I have received because of what you do. So Stand Up for the Truth is reaching behind prison bars. Um, It's amazing to me, but Benjamin, if you're listening, God bless you and strengthen you in the name of Jesus. And may he continue to encourage you and protect you as you grow and as you be able able to reach other uh, inmates for the kingdom. Um, Just very, it's a good reminder for all of us in ministry. You never know. We are faithful to the Lord. You never know how great a reach or impact you might have. Just let's be faithful to the calling that uh, God's given us. Now, um, one faithful pastor, uh, Matt Truella, um, he sent this out in a newsletter. He was on the front page of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel several months ago, but the article was fascinating. It was called, Many white evangelicals don't want the vaccine. And here's what Matt said, Matt Truella. He said, though they meant this article for evil, the Lord has used it for good. He said the very first quote they gave me is worth its weight in gold. And it was put out by uh, USA Today Network, Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He said, and it says, uh, this is, think about this, several months ago, Matt Truella stood before a maskless a maskless crowd in a Brookfield Hotel ballroom on Easter Sunday and said he would never get the COVID vaccine for one simple reason. Quote, the government has no right to put anything into my body or my children's bodies. End quote. Truella decried the, quote, false narrative of COVID-19 and the mountain of lies used to propel it. He described religious leaders promoting the vaccine as blind as a bat. And he repeated the deceit, now they're calling it a deceit, that vaccines are experimental gene therapy. Truella is pastor of Mercy Seat Christian Church and founder of the anti-abortion, in our terminology, pro-life, pro-Bible organization, missionary to the pre-born, right? And USA Today, anti-abortion, anti-women, yeah, right? Um, And although his rhetoric is all his own, his position is shared by many white evangelical Protestants who are proving the most resistant to becoming vaccinated. Let me just skip to the end of the article, friends. And they buried this. They buried this. Oh, one more quote. For evangelicals like Chuela, politics and religion are inextricably linked. Remember, um, even in my book, the second chapter, I believe, is called the The second biggest lie in America. What's that lie? The separation of church and state. 
We are to be salt and light. We are to be a fragrant aroma. We are to be engaging in our culture, not backing away, not burying our heads in the sand. So this final uh, paragraph in this article, and they save this for the end. Remember the title, the title, Many White Evangelicals Don't Want the Vaccine. Some may fear medical or government overreach. Like that's a bad thing, right? We're concerned about government overreach in America. Here's what it says in this article. Vaccine resistance is not exclusive to white evangelical Protestants, this liberal progressive paper admits. It says in the April poll by the Public Religion Research Institute, black, Hispanic, and other non-white Protestants also registered high wariness of the vaccine. So, isn't that interesting? They want the headline. Here's what. Now, here's how this works, guys. If you've been following the media and 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 activist media journalists, um, they put out the headline knowing that most people won't read the article. They'll just assume they know everything by just seeing the headline. Many white evangelicals don't want the vaccine, and they frame that as a bad thing, right? These idiots are concerned about government overreach. And then at, people will, will just think, oh, white people don't want the vaccine. But the very end, they, they say it in the very end of the article, in a public poll. Black, Hispanic, and other non-white Protestants, evangelicals, also don't want the vaccine. Isn't that interesting? That, my friends, is what I get upset about. That is media malpractice. Ooh. Anyway, expose the works of darkness. Um, now that article that I mentioned, I teased at the very beginning of the podcast. It's uh, over at Washington Times, and it's also available um, over at foxbusiness.com. And I'm sure other outlets, I think the Daily Wire and others have put this out. The White House, under the Biden administration now, the Surgeon General is flagging Facebook posts for moderation. This was admitted to by Jen Psaki, and she came out and said it. Didn't even have to circle back to it. She says, we're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. We're working with, oh, listen to this, we're working with doctors and medical experts, right? So they're, they're working with Fauci. And the, quote, experts who believe in the, quote, science. (laughs) You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Science. Friends, uh, in the Washington Times headline, White House admits de facto moderating Facebook. They're flagging problematic, problematic posts. This is wrong. This is communist policy. And this administration is dangerous. That's There you go. You don't have to wonder what I think about it. So she says, um, we're we're trying to get accurate information out there. Wouldn't that be nice if they also were concerned about the lies of the left? She says, we're helping get trusted content out there, trusted by liberals, trusted by globalists, trusted by the left, trusted by socialists, trusted by atheists. You get the picture, right? So the Surgeon General's office Um, issued a new report Wednesday titled Confronting Health Misinformation. Now, I understand there can be misinformation on both sides, but what have we been through, friends, in the last two years? Censorship? Come Come on, I read a chapter about this in my book, Canceling Christianity. One of the chapters is on the one party media big tech conglomerate. This is dangerous to a free republic. So they're making recommendations. The government, understand what we're saying and think about our world history. The government is regulating free speech and content and information, and they are making recommendations, right? And they're imposing consequences for accounts that repeatedly violate platform policies. What are the platform policies? You and I know community standards. Well, what are those standards? Well, if you share something that they don't believe is accurate or that doesn't fit their worldview, they're going to censor it. That's what they're talking about in the White House, right? Okay, so the Surgeon General uh, advisors are usually reserved for urgent public health threats 
And while those threats have often been related to what we eat, drink, smoke, and, and today we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health, right? Misinformation. Like the misinformation they've put out about what happened on January 6th. Misinformation. Is that not an imminent health? Is that not, doesn't that pose a threat? They're trying to frame Christians, conservatives, Republicans, independents, Trump supporters, and go on down the list as domestic terrorists, as dangerous, as needing to be monitored. So our speech needs to be regulated now by the powers that be. And friends, if you don't see the red flags like I do, I encourage you to do a little bit more research on world history and understand, and even on Constitution. I was saying they're going door to door Right, trying to see who's vaccinated, who's not, and encourage people to get the vaccine. We should be going door to door with Bibles and pocket constitutions. Hey, here's what the Constitution, for those of you that don't understand <laughs> our historical documents and our freedoms in America, including religious freedom. And by the way, back to that article uh, that was a, a, about Matt Truella, about people who don't want the vaccine, shouldn't there be? The religious exemptions? What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? I haven't heard much about them, but from what I understand, they're against a lot of medicines, and I'm sure they're against a vaccine put out by government. I'm sure they are. We don't hear anything about that, but it, any, it doesn't matter. If that's the best thing in the world for you, It is if it is the cure and everybody knows it works, people should still have the freedom to say no. My body, my choice. <laughs> oh, gosh. I won't even go down that road. Okay, remember to go if you want accurate information. If, we've got a list on our website, 200 resources you can trust. Go to StandUpForTheTruth.com, upper left hand. It says uh, podcast, listen live. Upcoming, which is our guest calendar, resources, 200 resources you can trust. Please share that because we are limited, but you are not, most of you. So share that. Um, and I think I got to almost everything I wanted to cover in that segment. <laughs> oh my goodness, though, what they're doing now, and they're justifying, they're justifying communist policy. All right. Fun times in the United States of America, or I just, I should just say the States of America. <laughs> I'm not sure we can say United anymore. Anyway, we'll look at who's Coming up next week as far as guests on Stand Up For The Truth when we come back. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. Monday, Tony Garule will be back with us. Radical Truth. If you want more information on his ministry, check out, I believe it's RadicalTruth.net. Christopher Cohn, first time guest. We've had a lot of those recently, so we'll be talking about... No, never mind. Different topic. I was reading something else. Um, Jason Jimenez, next Wednesday, Stand Strong Ministries, and a new book out called The Christian Left, exposing them. Lucas Miles, an author and pastor, will be with us on Thursday. And we welcome back Troublemaker for Christ, Scott Lively, on Friday. Um, And then uh, we've got some... Patriot Pastors the following week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.